You know, we often tease and joke about the things that we don't understand. Things that are kind of incomprehensible to us. This is especially true of of things that we're being asked to do. For instance, I often joke and tease about when somebody says, hey, how about building something? You know, like building a bookshelf or anything like that. Like for me, I make jokes about how bad it's going to be and all those kind of things. Bonnie and I had a great laugh last night because I told Bonnie about this video. And Bonnie thought, There's no way she's going to be able to interpret comedy fast enough (laughs) with what Bill Cosby was doing. It's just, you know, we kind of joke and laugh about these things. Has anybody ever been in that boat, you know, you're asked to do something that, you know, you just kind of make a joke out of it? Anybody, amen? Okay. You know, we kind of make a joke about it. Um, There's this comedian that we just watched who has a classic comedy routine entitled Noah serves as one such example. In this routine, he points out Noah to be a person who comedically questions instructions about building an ark. Now, it's a funny routine. It's a funny routine. And I'm not beating him up for the routine, and I don't want anybody to think that I'm saying we should throw stones at him because he turned this into a comedy routine. But how close is this to the actual truth? Do you think that Noah really asked the question... What's an ark? Or did he simply get right to work? Nobody that is walking on the face of this planet in bodily form today can answer this question. The only ones who know is Noah and God. How the conversation went down. However, we can get some clues from the Bible about the tone of this conversation, how it went down, how things might have went. And even though our clues won't construct an entire conversation, especially one that's as good as this comedy routine, um, it will help us grow in our faith as we seek to follow Jesus. So that's why we're going to look today at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. So I want you to open your Bibles and to follow along there. Read along in your Bible. This is one of the things, as you're opening your Bible, I want to encourage you something. Bring your Bible with you. Do you know how many times I've met people and I say, why do you believe what you believe? And they say, well, because the pastor told me. And it's like, well, where is it based in Scripture? Where does that belief come out of the Bible? I don't know. My pastor told me. Listen, I'm telling you, as a pastor, don't believe it just because I say it. You need to get into the Word of God and read it for yourself. For all you know, I'm making it up. Amen? So you need to check me. Amen? I'm not going to be insulted if you check me. Amen? Okay. So let's look at Hebrews 11.7. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. <clears throat> it's funny about the English Standard Version. A little rabbit trail here real quick. There's a young lady in our church that told her mom and dad when they were looking at Bible translations, I want an English Standard Version because I like English. <laughs> So, anyways, you know, the, the English Standard Version is one of the more modern translations and very, very sound. There are some other good ones. Are there some bad translations out there? Absolutely. If you have a question about whether or not a translation that you're thinking about using is bad, come and talk to me privately. I'll share with you what the, what the research shows on those, how those things are translated, etc., etc., etc. For instance, any paraphrase Bible 
should never be used as your primary Bible. It is not a translation from the language that was written in into English. It is what somebody thinks that it says. They went to the English, read it, and paraphrased it in their own words. So they're helpful, but they're not reliable as a translation. You understand what I'm saying? And so I can help you with those things. So anyhow, 11.7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. There is a lot of information in that one small verse. And we're going to try to unload some of that today for you to look at and for you to wrestle with and for you to ponder in your heart. But before we do that, it doesn't matter how eloquent my words are. It doesn't matter how well I've prepared a sermon. If God's Holy Spirit doesn't instruct each one of us individually today, then we're going to walk away from here with nothing but head knowledge. So let's invite Him to teach us today. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, triune God, we invite you now to come in power and in force and to speak into each one of our hearts individually as we explore your word. Lord, help us to wrestle with this concept of Noah and and what was going on here and, and the historical facts of this story. Help us to see what it is that you want us to see out of this passage. Speak into our lives. Reveal the truth as only you can. Take any words that I'm going to say that are not of you and strike them from my mind. And Lord, if I'm forgetting something that you want me to say, put it in my mind so that your people will be edified, built up, strengthened, and encouraged in their faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. So Noah's reaction in this passage of Scripture... Uh, that he talks about here. And by the way, for homework this week, you're going to read multiple chapters of the Old Testament, specifically the book of Genesis, for those who do the homework. For those who don't know what homework is, I give passages at the end of my message that allows people to go in and read and see these things out of the Scriptures themselves. And the story of Noah and the ark and all this is actually several chapters in in the book of Genesis. And so you're going to be given those references at the end of the service. But So Noah's reaction, though, here in in Hebrews 7, talks a little bit about his reaction. And it doesn't really say much about his reaction, what he was thinking, what he was feeling inside the Genesis account, but it does tell us here, God reveals this through through the author of Hebrews to us. So Noah's reaction. Now, I'm sure that in Noah's reaction, he likely had the need to ask some clarifying questions about the task he was given. We don't know that he did this, but I'm sure that that's a possibility. I mean, I don't think Bill is that far off when he portrays Noah as saying, what's an ark? Right? I mean, something that nobody has ever seen before, and he's being asked to build it. Something that might be interesting to you, and we're going to come back to this a little bit later, he probably would have asked, what's rain? At that point, it had never rained. Interestingly enough, and you're going to see this when you go and read this, we often portray out of the story of Noah that it was the raining for 40 days and 40 nights that flooded the world. It's not actually what the passage says. 
The passage says that it started raining and the fountains of the deep burst forth. The majority of the water probably came from underground springs. And people say, well, what happened to that water? Where did it recede to? Into the Atlantic Ocean. If you look, if you take the water off the globe and you look at the, at the, at the globe without water on top of it, there's a very interesting picture that happens there, this fissure that starts up where the mouth of the Jordan River is, comes down the Jordan River, into the Persian Gulf, out into the Atlantic Ocean, widens as it goes away. The average depth of the Atlantic Ocean is about a mile deep. The average depth of the Pacific Ocean is about two miles deep. By the way, that little crack follows the line of the continents. Some people think this idea that they teach in school about a supercontinent is actually contradictory to Christian doctrine. It is not. Christian creationists believe that there was once a supercontinent and that a large pocket of water was underneath of this and God used that pocket of water as part of the floodwaters. Very interesting. You have on the Atlantic Ocean, all of its coast, you have one continental shelf. This is where the continent drops off into the ocean. On the Pacific Ocean, you have two. You have one that's at the normal depth level, and guess how deep the other one is? About a mile. On the Pacific Ocean side, you have what are called, you have this all over the ocean, things called atolls. Atolls are kind of like these submerged islands that have coral and stuff growing on them. They're always slightly below the surface, except for some of them that are in the Pacific Ocean, and they found the remnants of these about a mile deep. Interesting, huh? People say, where'd all the water go? As the continents separated out from one another, the things collapsed back in, and that gave the, the water the ability to go back where it came from. So, interesting, but you'll see all of that in there. <clears throat> but at this point, there had been no rain. I mean, you know, and, and now if I was Noah, we don't know that he asked this, but I'd say, um, God, how long have I got? Like, I got a week? You know, I mean, let's just be honest. All of us here, if we only had a week, we'd kind of be, you know, in trouble. Even with all of our modern power tools, we're probably not putting it together in a week. <clears throat> you know, but these are the kind of questions. So, you know, a lot of this stuff was new to Noah, and so he probably had questions, and I'm sure that Noah, and, you know, that his family had questions too. So whether or not he had questions, you know, we don't know specifically what they were and all those things, but here's what we do know, that even if Noah did have questions, that Noah did not allow any questions he might have to stop him from obeying what God had told him to do. Nowhere in the scriptures do we see that Noah said, well, you can't answer all my questions, and so therefore I'm not going to do it. Now think about this. Put yourself in Noah's position. What's an ark? Now you're trying to explain to somebody what an ark is when they have no starting point for that. Even the best description, Noah's going to be like, what? He didn't let that stop him. Think about describing rain to somebody who's never seen it. He didn't let, not understanding what rain was and how all that happened, he didn't let that stop him 
from following God. Here's one that might have, might have really messed with my head had I been in Noah's position. Noah didn't build this thing in the water. He built it on the land. And it was massive and he had no way to test it. To see if it floated. Listen, if Brian goes and buys a new boat next week, I don't want to go out on the first time with him. I want to go out on the second time when we know it floats. We're all laughing about this, but ask Matt Deal about a boat taken on water. He's got a story. Surprise, Rebecca still gets in boats with you. <laughs> but you understand, I mean, this is the thing that really would have messed with my head. So I'm supposed to, you're, you know, he's, let's say he gets the whole flood thing and he gets the water's going to drown everybody out and it's all going to come over there. And he's understanding all this and he said, yeah, this thing's going to float. I'd, I'd be saying, I've never built a boat before. How, how am I going to know I get the, the, the seams jointed together the right way so that water doesn't come in and sink the whole thing? But see, he never let any of those things stop him from doing what God had told him to do. He built it according to the design that God gave him and he trusted that it would float. He obeyed. Now, there's a couple of commentators named Ellingsworth and Nida and in their commentary on the book of Hebrews, they write this, the point is that Noah showed his reverence for God in a practical way by, so blow your doors off, doing what God said. Obeyed is implied, according to these authors. The relation between obedience and building a boat, they say, may be expressed. He obeyed God by building a boat. He built a boat because he was obedient to God, or he did what God told him and built a boat. James, in in his book entitled by his name, says this in a different way. You tell me you have faith. And I will show you my faith by what I do. Faith without obedience is not, in fact, faith at all. It is a pipe dream. Noah's reaction, though, in all of this we see here, and again, I'm not trying to beat up the comedian for his uh, interpretation of this. I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's fun to watch and all of those things, but we have to understand that Noah's reaction was anything but comedic. Instead, he reacted in a way that the old timers in the church call the fear of God. Now listen, if you're under 60 years old, you have a high likelihood that you do not understand what the fear of God is. Because we don't teach this in the church anymore. We, we teach things like, well, God wouldn't want us to be afraid. Really? says in some place in Scripture, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I'm going to pronounce this word wrong, but the word translated here, uh, reverent fear, is the word, yelebiomi, whatever. (laughs) And it means to show reverent regard with a certain element of awe, and in some instances, fear. 
But people nowadays inside the church are turned off by this idea of fear. God wouldn't want us to fear Him. If you mean fear God and He wouldn't want us to fear Him in the sense of cowering and hiding from Him so that you could avoid His wrath and never spend any time with Him and just running away from His presence, you're right. He doesn't want us to fear Him like that. But a child who loves and respects their parent, fears their parent. Now, you can fear your parent because they're abusive, or you can fear them for the right reasons, a godly type of fear. This is the kind of thing that Noah is having here. This kind of, it's not just reverence. And can I just be honest with you? And understand, I'm not making a suggestion on how we ought to dress. Okay, People dress different ways and out of honor for God and what they're comfortable with, and that's okay. But reverence is not dressing a certain way when you come to service. I'm not making any commentary on music, but reverence is not singing a particular set of songs. I'm not making a commentary on whether or not you should join a small group, but reverence is not saying, I've joined a small group. Reverent fear of God is this thing where you say, God is God. He is sovereign. He has expectations. And I am going to follow those expectations because I don't want to get on his bad side. We know that God is a God of grace. We know that God is a God of mercy. We know that He sent Jesus Christ to die in our place out of grace and mercy for us. But let me tell you, out of the creation account, I think the reason the fall happened, one of the reasons, is because Adam and Eve, for whatever reason, lost a reverent fear of God. They were not concerned about the consequences of their actions on the negative side. They were only concerned about the positive of what it could do to make them feel good, to feel important, to have knowledge, to have those kind of things. I want to share a story with you really quick. Now you need to understand as I share this story, I am not... Speaking for or against homeschool. I think there are people who homeschool who should not. And I think there are people who public school who should not. I think that each family has to seek God and ask the Lord, how do you want me to handle this in my unique situation? There is not a one-size-fits-all approach to this. Public school is right for some kids. Homeschool is right for other kids. Christian school is right for other kids. I am not taking a stand on this, on, on saying one way is right. I'm taking a stand saying that each family has to wrestle with that individually on their own. Understand that before I start this story. Can I get amen? Okay, because this is where I'll get sound by and say, Pastor says we have to homeschool. Or Pastor doesn't like homeschool. You can't say any of that. And I'll have the recording to prove it. 
Okay. Before we moved to Pennsylvania, while we were still pastoring Crossroads, had no intention of leaving the Clarksville, Tennessee area. We were living in Kentucky. We were pastoring a church in Tennessee. It it was like, you know, living in Girard or Erie or something like that. I mean, border towns, you know, just right there on the border of the two states. And so we began to feel, my wife especially, began to feel like God was telling her that our kids were to be taken out of the public school and homeschooled. And we had no desire to do this. For us, public school had always been right. And my wife was wrestling with this concept and she was talking to me about it. She was talking to others about it. And she felt like the Lord was telling her, but she was, she was thinking, nope, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I don't have the skills and, and all of these kind of things and we're not going to do this. And one day while she was seeking the Lord on this and kind of telling, telling God her mind on the whole thing, God said, it's fine, Sarah, you don't have to homeschool. If you believe that you can protect and, and train your kids outside of my will, don't do it. Reverential fear came over my wife. Not through a preacher, not through anything. As she sat there in the quietness of her room, talking to the Lord, spending time with the Lord, and she told him she wasn't going to do it, God said, it's fine, you don't have to if you think you can protect them outside of my will. If you think you can do this outside of my will, go for it. Now understand, I don't believe that we have to protect our kids from public school. I was public schooled. And if I had a kid right now, I would probably put him in public school as my knee-jerk reaction. So I'm not, this isn't about that. So she decides, I think we're supposed to do this even though I'm afraid. And we looked at all the things and, you know, all of the different pieces of the puzzle. It's very different than being in PA. Homeschooling is down there. Every state can do it, can set their own regulations differently. And so we decided to pull the kids out. Within a couple of weeks of deciding to pull our kids out, we got a letter from the school district. It was summertime when we decided to do this. And this letter said that the school system in which our kids were supposed to be going to school was rated in the top ten worst in the entire state. So bad was our school district that the school was, was, and the schools our kids are supposed to go to, the schools were supposed to offer to any family that wanted to the option to bus their children to other nearby schools in the state for alternate education because it was so far below what it should be, they could not require anybody to go to them. But, the letter said, Every school within driving distance, within a reasonable busing distance, is also in the same category. And so our solution is to cancel all advanced classes. And we're going to really dumb everything down so that we can bring everything up. Now, if you think that your kids might want to go to college, that's probably not a good situation to have them in means our kids were in middle school and getting ready to go into high school right 
out of reverential fear of God, out of saying, I, I don't think I can do this better. I, I, I want to be in your blessed plan. I want to be underneath of your covering. I want to be underneath of these things. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to go forward in it. Even though I don't feel like I have the skills, even though the curriculum that we felt the Lord was leading us to was astronomically expensive and we, quite frankly, could not afford it, we trusted Him and we followed Him because of my wife's reverent fear of Jesus. We need to learn from the old-timers of the faith what the fear of God really looks like. So let's talk about our reactions. I gave you one story about my own life, about how we reacted when God asked us to do something incomprehensible. But what about you? What has God been asking you to do? We have been approaching the Hebrews uh, chapter 11, the Faith Hall of Fame, saying, what is God asking us to do? How is He calling us to go outside of our comfort zone? What things is He calling us to give to Him, to entrust to His care? What are the things that He's asking us to do? Maybe you're being asked to, to quit your job and, and to to go into another field. Maybe you're being asked to move across the country. Maybe God is asking you to to enter in a full-time Christian service. Maybe God is asking you to transfer where your kids are going to school. Maybe God is asking you to tithe. Maybe God is asking you to be a part of a missional outreach group that's, that's intentionally trying to reach our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe God is asking you to take the step of faith and become a member of the church. Maybe He's asking you all kinds of different things. I can't tell you what he's asking you, but I know he's asking all of us something because God just never leaves us alone. He's always messing with us. Amen? He's always messing with us. Amen? So what's your reaction going to be? I mean, we can nervously laugh it off by making a joke out of it. Do you know how many times that's the reaction of people? God has asked me to do this thing and I nervously laugh it off and I joke about it. And I say it's incomprehensible. I can't do it. I must be misunderstanding it. We turn it into something. God can't mean that. Oh, God doesn't know me. I mean, let me give you one primary example of something that I think that God asks people to do all the time. That they nervously joke and laugh it off. But it's not church people. It's not church people I'm talking about with this example. You know how many times God says in His Word that He's willing that none should perish? Can I get Amen if you know that His Word says that? Amen. Okay. So that He's His the closest thing He gave to a mission statement was that He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Amen. So we go out and we invite people to become a part of the church, and they see this as an incomprehensible thing, and they laugh and they nervously joke about it, and they say something like this. that building would collapse on me if I walked in there. Can I just tell you this real quick? It's impossible for the church building to collapse on you because there's no such thing as a church building. This is not a church. The word church has nothing to do with physical structures. So, Tell, tell your friends that when they nervously joke about it. Hey, look, the worst that could happen is you get dogpiled by the church. The church is people, 
That's inherent in the definition of the Greek word we translate church. It is always people in the multiple sense. Plural. Never person. Always multiple people. Not a building. But we nervously laugh it off. Maybe we nervously laugh off this this call to tithe. (laughs) Man, I got so many bills and I'm looking at all this and the math doesn't add up and we explain why it won't work and we laugh it off. Maybe we nervously laugh off being called to teach in a a training ground class or in a small group or something like that about, (laughs) there's no way, I could never do this. Do you understand something? That one, I just want to tell you a little bit of my own story. I had no... None, zero, zilch, zip, theological education or training when I became a senior pastor of a church. He does not call equipped people. He equips those He calls. Amen? But we nervously can laugh it off. Or another one. Here's another reaction that people often have. We get angry at God and say, how dare you ask this of me? How dare you? You are only the author of life. You are only holding me together by an act of your will. You only have me in the palm of your hand and everything that I have is yours. How dare you ask me? You see the problem with that? But how many times have you found yourself angry at God, shaking your fist at Him? Now listen, I know that sometimes we get angry at God, and we do shake our fist at Him, and God can handle that. The problem is is when we stay angry and stay shaking our fist at Him and begin to fight Him and begin to to go against what He said, there's a song that we're going to be singing tonight at, at at the evening in His presence that says, I fight you for the things that I don't really want, and yet... I don't take what you give that I need. This is that being angry and shaking your fist at him and just fighting him just for the sake of fighting him to prove that you're your own person when in fact you're not. None of us are. We all exist because God wills that we exist. Even people who don't know him yet as Lord and Savior exist only because he wills us to exist. Or, or we can react in one of two ways in which the characters in a parable that Jesus told about two sons who were asked to go work in the father's vineyard. The, the first son that was asked to go work in the father's vineyard, he, he did this. This is a sneaky one. Okay, I go. And dad left. And he sat in the house and did nothing. We can acknowledge God's command and then be complacent in obeying. The first son in this parable that Jesus tells in in the book of Matthew, I want to say it's in the latter parts of Matthew, maybe 14, something like that. I'm not exactly sure. But this parable, this, this first son says, I'm going to obey. I'm going to follow through with it. I'm going to do what you said. I go. And then he sat in the house and did nada. Jesus says about people who do this that they'll acknowledge me with their lips but deny me in their hearts. The modern day prophets and psalmists, and I know some people struggle when I say that about modern musicians, but they really are. Modern day prophets and psalmists 
DC Talk said that the single biggest cause of atheism in the world today, this is on the Jesus Freak album, that the single biggest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus Christ with their lips and then walk out the door and deny Him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Yes, Lord. I obey. Lord, I know in Matthew 28 that it tells me to go and make disciples. Amen. My wife brought up last night an old sermon that Francis Chan preached where Francis Chan said, how would you react if your kid, you went and told him, go clean your room. They went away. They came back 30 minutes later. They said, mom, I memorized what you told me to do. You did? Mm-hmm. Even know how to say it in Greek with proper pronunciation. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. And you walk in and look and the room's still trashed. This is that saying, I go. How many many of us have memorized the Great Commission? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. How many of us can recite that, but then refuse to make disciples? I've got to be a disciple maker. But I need to be discipled for like five or six years and get all ready and all of these kind of things and make sure that I have all of the answers, which will never happen. You'll never have all the answers. Guarantee you, when you think you do, that's when you're in trouble. And we refuse to do it. When we refuse to open up our fellowship to other people, when we refuse to to say, come and be discipled, when we refuse to, I've come, I've been a part of the church, I'm here for five years or maybe five months, but nobody's reaching out to me anymore. So I'm going to get mad and I'm going to leave. Instead of realizing I'm now a part of the church and I need to turn around and face this direction and grab some hands. This is the one who acknowledges it. Who says, I go. Who cries out in the song. We're going to sing a song tonight that says, And he called out to me saying, Whom shall I send to the people? And so I answered unto him saying, Here am I, send me. And we cry it out. And we have this good weeping session. We're laying on the floor at the altar. We're bawling. We're saying, God, send me. And then we get up and we walk out like nothing ever happened. We can react like that. Or we can react like the second son who said no at first, but then got up and obeyed. We can obey God even if we don't want to in reverential fear of God. Can I just tell you that sometimes God asks me to do things that I do not want to do. And as I stand up here, understand I don't stand up here as judge, jury, and executioner. If you're struggling through some of these things, I struggle through them myself. And sometimes I fall flat on my face, not in an act of worship, but flat on my face in like, man, I really messed up up I really messed up I'm not judging you but can you sit back and wrestle with this and say even though I don't want to I fear God I have reverential fear of him he is awe inspiring to me 
And I believe he's calling me to do this. And God, I'm going to step out on faith. Even if I die. Even if my body is destroyed. Even if I lose everything that I own. I mean, if you knew that God was asking you to do something, are you willing to lose it all for him? That's when it gets real. How many of us are willing to lose our home, our cars, our families, everything? That's harsh. But Jesus talks in those terms that if we don't hate our mother and brother, if we, if we won't be willing to lose all of that for him, that we can't be his disciples. That's his words, not mine. I struggle with that. I'm going to tell you right now, if the Lord says, Jerry, go plant a church with no job, no nothing, like we did with Crossroads. Unfortunately, the longer I've walked with the Lord, the more I would have a problem trusting him in a situation like that. I'm like, how are you going to provide, Lord? Even though I've been through it, even though I've been trusting him, that's a struggle that I would have. But I hope that when faced with that, I would say, even if I destroy my credit, even if we're near homeless or homeless, even if we lose everything we have, I obey. Jesus tells us in the word, don't fear the one who can only kill your body and then is done with you, but fear the one who has the power to send you to hell. That's God he's talking about. In the New Testament, that's the Father. This reverential fear. See, by faith, Noah obeyed. If we want to learn how to become a giant in the faith hall of fame ourselves, we have to begin to obey what Jesus says. The entire book of Malachi is about this very thing. If you go read the book of Malachi, it is laid out in in what we call a chiasm. I'm not going to get into all of that. But here's the point. The people are saying to God, if you would show up first and fulfill your promise first, then we would obey. And God's response time and time and time and time again is, no, you obey me first and then I'll show up. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his family and thereby condemned the world. In reverent fear about things that had not yet come to pass, he obeyed. I don't want you to take my word for it, though. Monday, homework for those who try to read the homework. And people say, homework, some people ask, are you misspelling that? No, it's intentionally H-O-N-E, like sharpening. The the, The Bible itself refers to the Bible as the sword. So we're sharpening ourselves by getting in His Word. Monday, Genesis 6. Tuesday, Genesis 7. Wednesday, Genesis 8. Thursday, Genesis 9. 
If you do the homework for those four days, you're going to have read the entire account of Noah's family and what happened there and all of those things. And it is just rich and full of stuff. We see in that a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. We see a beautiful picture of that. We see a beautiful picture of the grace of God in this wrathful event as the man who will have faith is saved from certain death. Friday, Matthew 10, 26-33. This is that one, that's that passage where Jesus says, don't fear the one who has only the power to kill you, but the one who can send you to hell after. That's the one whom you should fear. And then Saturday, 1 Samuel 24. And some of you, if you miss what I'm saying here, you're going to really struggle to understand what 1 Samuel 24 has to do with what I'm talking about. But here's why. Listen to what I'm saying. I think sometimes we think that reverential fear of God means we do not have courage, means we're cowering. It doesn't. This is, the, this is the historical record of when David was in the cave and Saul, the king of Israel, who was pursuing David to kill him, comes in the cave to use the bathroom that David and his group is hiding in. And his boys are like, hey, Davy, sneak up on him. And get him now. God's delivered him into your hand. And David crawls up there. Cuts off the corner of his robe. And in reverential fear of God is convicted. That he's reached out his hand towards God's anointed king, Saul. That it's not David's place to take Saul out of kingship. That's up to God. And in reverential fear of God, David walks out of that cave to certain death. Because there's an army there looking to kill him. It says, here am I. Whoo. Reverential fear of God does not look like cowardice. It looks like courage. Talk about being a man of God. Whoo. Let that sink in. We want you to read these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have spoken. We thank you that Noah was a faithful, obedient man and that his example serves to illustrate what it means to live in faith. Lord, each one of us right now is struggling with different aspects of this, I'm sure. And so we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, even during the offering teaching that's coming from John right now, that you would speak into this and that you would call us to obey you and that in reverential fear of you, in awe of you, in just trusting you, we would say, yes, Lord, I obey, and then follow through with it. Lord, I confess to you my own struggles in this area. There are many things, not just planting a church again or anything like that. There are many things that if you asked me to do it, I would struggle with it. But I ask at the time that you ask, that when you'd come and ask those things of me, that I'll be pliable in your hand. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.